Harvard Divinity School. En Hedwana, Voicing the Feminine Divine, December 12th, 2023. Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome. My name is Charles Stang, and I serve as the director of the Center for the Study of World Religions here at Harvard Divinity School. And I am delighted to welcome you to this very, very special event. And hey, Duana, voicing the, pardon me, I wanted to say divine feminine, voicing the feminine divine. I confess that until last year, Enheduana was a name unknown to me. It was Anne Harley who first brought her to my attention. I will introduce Anne properly later in the program. Suffice for now to say that Anne is currently a visiting scholar at the center and part of our Transcendence and Transformation Initiative. It was Anne who first told me of Enheduana and encouraged me to go to New York City in February of this year to see the Morgan Library and Museum's exhibition entitled, She Who Wrote, Enheduana and the Women of Mesopotamia, 3400 to, 20, uh, to 2000 BC. Um, it was brilliantly curated by Sidney Babcock. We'd hoped to have Sidney with us this evening, but alas, life uh, intervened and he could not make it. So, who is Enheduanna? Simply put, as the Morgan exhibition put it, she who wrote. She who wrote centuries before Homer, the blind poet whom scholars typically acknowledge as the father of Western literature. You might say then that Enheduanna is the mother of literature, straddling East and West, and she's much, much older than the father. She lived around 2300 BC. She was the daughter of King Sargon, who founded the world's first empire the Akkadian Empire, which united the city-states of ancient Sumeria. She was the high priestess of the moon god Nana in the city of Ur, and an apologist for her father's empire. She was a personal devotee of the goddess Inanna, later Ishtar, the patron deity of war, sex, change, and destruction. And she was, she is, the world's first author, a woman, a priestess, and most lastingly, a poet. She sang of gods and their temples, and her verses, especially those to Inanna, are startling, stunning, some of the most powerful I have ever read. We have with us tonight her most recent English translator, Dr. Sophus Hell, whom I will also introduce properly in a few moments. He reminds us that the goal of Enheduanna's hymns, quote, are not to describe the world, but to change it, to change it by invoking the gods and enlisting their help. He also reminds us that, quote, the hymns that we now label literature were in fact a way for ancient people to defend themselves from the mood swings of the gods. Their lavish praise might soothe the heart of an angry deity, 
and so keep its wrath at bay, at least for a time. And although he asks us whether it is right to think of these hymns as literature, Sophus also asks us to wonder, and here I'm quoting, what would the history of Western literature look like if it began not with Homer and his war-hungry heroes, but with a woman from ancient Iraq who sang hymns to the goddess of chaos and change? Indeed, what would it look like to begin the history of literature not with he, but with she who wrote? This afternoon's programs falls into two parts. In the first, we will hear from our two esteemed experts, Professor Celine de Bourse and Dr. Sophus Hell. After their two talks, uh, Dr. Hell will read a selection of Enheduanna's poems in their original Sumerian with his English translation. After his readings, we'll shift from the first to the second part of the program, the musical performance. And I will return to the podium to introduce Anne Harley, uh, the piece, the project it's a part of, the composer, conductor, and our musicians. But now it's time for me to introduce our two experts. Professor Celine de Bourse is Assistant Professor of Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations at Harvard University. She is an Assyriologist specializing in the languages, history, and religion of Babylonia during the first millennium BCE. Her work centers around two broad themes, ancient ritual and the effects of empire, which she studies together in the context of the Ahamanid and Hellenistic Babylonian periods. Dr. Sophus Hell is a translator, journalist, and cultural historian specializing in the literature of ancient Iraq. He has translated the Babylonian epic Gilgamesh and the Sumerian poems attributed to Enheduanna. He is currently a postdoctoral fellow at Princeton University, where he's working on a project that looks at how ancient epics engage with time. Celine and Sophus, thank you so very much for joining us for this event. We're delighted to host you. And while I'm in the business of giving thanks, there are a few people I must acknowledge. First, I'd like to thank Gosha Skladowska, the center's associate director, and Lori Sedgwick, where are you, Lori, in the back, as she often is. Lori is the center's events coordinator. I'd like to thank them for their tireless work on this very special event. Perhaps I shouldn't say tireless, though, because I think they're both pretty tired <laughs> after this long semester, and they deserve a holiday break. Second, I'd like to thank Anne Harley, who I genuinely think is tireless, uh, or at least we haven't seen her slow down once in this semester. Just before this event began, she was pitching Gosha and me three other events. So, so perhaps she is tireless. In all seriousness, though, Anne, you're a delight to have around. I'm forever grateful to you for many things, but for introducing me to Enheduanna. And finally, I want to thank Eve Seda. Where's Eve? There's Eve who is a postdoctoral fellow here at the center and our residential advisor, who has led this semester's reading group on Enheduanna. There is a certain poetry in knowing that you, a Mesopotamian woman and singer living over two millennia after Christ, is leading our reading group on another Mesopotamian woman and singer who lived over two millennia before Christ. 
Thank you, Eve, for all that you do for the center. So without further ado, we will start the program. Please join me in welcoming our two esteemed guests. Celine, the floor is yours. Hi, everyone. I want to start with thanking everyone for coming and for the people who have made this event possible. Um, it's really marvelous to put Enjeruana in the spotlight like this. Enjeruana's work was created and is set in the context of ancient Mesopotamian temples. Like all of Mesopotamian society, which was patriarchal, also Mesopotamian temples were largely a largely male-dominated space. And how did Enjeruana navigate this space? So today, I will not talk about Enjeruana, but about three other women, and I think they can help us understand a little bit of Enjeruana's experience. Before I start, I should say a little bit what a Mesopotamian temple is. Um, Mesopotamian temples are attested from the very early stages of Mesopotamian history until the very end, and they know very long, stable tradition. You can see on the slide that we are closer to the last temple in Mesopotamia in time than it is to one of the early temples attested in the same city, here in this case in Uruk. Um, Mesopotamian temples were not just places of worship. They did house statues of the gods, which were fed and clothed on a daily basis, were entertained with rituals and festivals. But they were also places of scholarship and learning, and they housed libraries within their walls. And they were also very important socioeconomic institutions. They employed many people that lived in their vicinity, and they held considerable economic assets. So you should keep all of this in mind when we talk about Enjeruana and other people in ancient Mesopotamian temples. Today, I want to travel through time and space within the Mesopotamian heartland, that is the land between the two rivers, Euphrates and Tigris. And we're going to travel from the early second millennium BCE until the end of the first millennium BCE. And we're going to meet three women who held different roles within their temple setting. Um, and we're going to start in the city of Sippar in the old Babylonian period. Is it the beginning or the middle or the first part of the second millennium BCE? And here we meet Awat Aya. Awat Aya was a Naditum priestess. We don't translate the Babylonian word Naditum. We just use that word because it best designates what a Naditum is. Awad Aya was probably part of a high status um, class of elite women who had uh, been devoted by their male family members to serve um, a god in their home city. So um, Awad Aya was unmarried, and so she devoted her life to the sun god, Shamash. We know very little about the cultic functions of women who were Naditums, but we know a little bit about their initiation because this little text tells us about that. It talks about how Awad Aya was initiated into the profession of Naditu. And it tells us, um, it tells us this in a very specific wording because the, the text is worded like a marriage contract. In a way, it seems to suggest that Awad Aya was somehow married 
um, even though she was not married to a human man. So it tells us about the dowry she receives, and it tells us about the objects that her father gives her for her life in the temple context. And it also tells us about a gift that was given to her father, a very common practice during marriage ceremonies. So after Awad Aya was initiated, she would move into what we call the gagum. It's often translated as cloister. It was a specific walled-off section in the city where all the naditums lived and worked together independently. Um, this may or may not be um, a part of the city of Sipa that was the gagum. We know, don't know for sure. Um, the most important task of these Naditum priestesses was to worship the god Shamash and his divine wife, Aya. And they did this to represent their male family members, mostly their father. Um, and they prayed for the well-being of their family. And that was the most important task. And this um, also meant that their father uh, gave, them, um, gave them a means of sustenance um, to be able to perform um, this continuous uh, devotion in front of the gods. But Naditums were not just unmarried, they also remained childless. You can see here the cuneiform signs that are used to write Naditu, and we read it in the Kadian as Luku, which means fellow woman. Um, so they remained uh, childless, which also means that all the um, uh, means that they received, if, if they received lands or silver or jewelry, that this would pass on to the next generation um, undividedly, because the Naditu had no um, children. So this means that these Naditu women were not just um, priestesses, they didn't just have a religious role, they had a very large economic role. And say so they almost serve as free agents who took over roles that were normally only held by men. Um, on the slide, you can see a little comparison of how men and women deal with uh, land uh, sale transactions. Uh, throughout the old Babylonian period, it's the first half of the second millennium. Um, and you can see that quite a lot of these Naditumim did participate in um, business transactions such as sales of land, the hiring out of slaves, and um, loans of silver. And so that meant that the uh, means that they had received from their male family members in order to be a Naditu priestess, um, they could enlarge these means, and at the end, when they would die, these would pass on to the next generation um, undividedly. Now, by the end of the Old Babylonian period, uh, by the middle of the second millennium BCE, or earlier actually already, this um, profession of Naditu kind of peters out um, and very likely can be linked to the fact that families simply no longer had the means to sustain these types of women. Um, and um, this really attests um, that the, the Naditums in Awad Aya really show us how these women in a temple setting could hold a very strong economic role. So now we move to more than a thousand years later, we make a big jump in time, and we move to the Assyrian city of Abela. Um, and here we meet Ishtar Beli Daini. Ishtar Beli Daini was a votaress who had been uh, dedicated by an Assyrian king, King Esarchadon, to the goddess Ishtar of Abela. We know very little about votaresses like Ishtar Beli Daini. Very likely, she was also from a rather high-end family, perhaps of foreign origin, maybe Egyptian or so. Um, and her 
social status is not entirely clear. Clearly, she was not a slave, but she was perhaps also not an entirely free woman. She was in the service of the goddess Ishtar of Arbela. But she was also more than that. She was, she did more than just, um, uh, she, did, she was more than just a priestess who prayed and uh, performed the worship of this goddess. Because Ishtar of Arbela is associated with prophecy. She was a goddess who would um, give oracles um, that related to the king and the king and the royal family and kingship. Um, and Ishtar Belidaini was one of these women who was in the service of Ishtar of Arbela and would receive oracles from the goddess and would then pronounce them. Um, and we have lists of those oracles uh, pronounced by different women in the service of Ishtar of Arbela. Um, and they all relate to specific um, political um, intrigues at the court or to uh, specific wars and military campaigns. And so there was a very clear political undertone to um, these prophecies pronounced by these women in the context of this cult. So Ishtar Beli uh, Daini was not just a priestess, but she had a very small part of political power too. Now we move back to Sipa, but in the 6th century BCE. And here we meet Muranatu. Muranatu performed one of the most stereotypical female tasks, and that's the task of weaving. Um, but she didn't do that in a very stereotypical female manner because she was a linen weaver. Um, I will tell you in a little bit why that was not so stereotypical. Um, Mesopotamian textiles were famous uh, throughout the ancient world, and we know that women were a very big part of the production of textiles, um, but they are largely invisible in our texts. Um, this was probably a task performed at home um, and among women, and so very little evidence um, is present to tell us about linen production or weaving productions. Now, weaving in the context of the temple is important because, as I said, the gods were clothed and they would receive different types of clothing on different occasions. And linen specifically was associated with purity um, and the divine. And so divine statues would receive, aside from other types of textiles, linen clothing. We have little lists like this one that tell us about who participated in the production of these, cloth of these clothes. And they are mostly men. So in the production of the clothing of the gods, only men participated. It is not entirely clear if this relates to some kind of purity concerns or if it's just kind of social part uh, aspect that these men would be working in a workshop in the temple, whereas women would be weaving at home. Um, but what is very interesting is that in eight of these little lists, Muranatu appears as one of the women who helps in the production of these linen clothing for the gods. Um, linen garments for the gods. So she weaves linen thread. She, in this specific list, she is one of the women who delivers one piece of clothing or part of a piece of clothing uh, for the gods. Um, and it raises a few questions about what we actually know from these little lists. Because we see all these men mostly appear in these lists, but we do know that women were so active in the production of textiles. So perhaps some people have suggested that behind Muranatu hide more women. 
that this reference to that woman who probably produced these things in her household, more women hide. And this brings me to a poem that I would really like to bring because I think it can also, we, I would like to keep it in mind when we talk about Enchiluana, and it's by Doreen Rifa. And she says, instructions to make a marionette. Fold a page, laundry smooth. Repeat, repeat again, until the paper pleats resemble a pale accordion. Sketch a female silhouette. Use a sewing scissors to snip a woman out of it. In lifting her female outline from the cuttings, you're birthing her from the page. She's not alone. Observe how they all rise, hand in hand in hand. Remember this lesson. In every page, there are undrawn women, each waiting in her own particular silence. So today we celebrate Enchiluana, as we should, as this marvelous, singular thing, unique person in history. But we should really keep in mind all the women that are undrawn and that hide behind the silhouettes of Enchiluana. Thank you very much. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Ms. Lynn. That was amazing. That was a really great uh, overview. Uh, giving a short overview of all of Mesopotamian religion is no easy thing. Uh, thank you also to the organizers for this amazing event. And I cannot wait to hear the musical performance. Very excited for that. Um, I would like to begin by taking your mind back to one of the first things Celine said, in which she compared these two temples from the very beginning of cuneiform culture and from the very end. Uh, these are three and a half thousand years apart. As Celine said, the later temple is closer to us in time than to its predecessor in uh, Uruk. So these are the kind of temporal distances that we are dealing with when we talk about ancient Mesopotamia. We like to say in the field, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, that we study the first half of history and leave the rest to everybody else. Um, so that is, um, and so today we're joining, journeying back to Enheduanna's period, which lies towards the beginning uh, of that time span. Uh, namely the Old Akkadian period. And the Old Akkadian period, just to set the scene in general, is this time of uh, uh, dramatic excitement, both for the better and for the worst. And it would be remembered for millennia to come uh, as this larger than life period, um, taking up a space in the cuneiform cultural imaginary, somewhat like, let's say, the golden age of piracy or the Westerns or the Middle Ages have for us today. This would be a time that would go on to become mythical. And the kings of the period, Sargon and Hidwana's father, and Naram-Sin, his eventual successor, uh, would become these figures that would be warped and twisted to become these, you know, um, what you say, like, um, uh, almost uh, archetypes of the good and the bad king. And that is the kind of period in which Inhidwana lived. And even beyond this historical myth-making through which her figure would be filtered, um, even the actual historical information that we have about the period point to a time of great uh, excitement, great dramatic change. The world would have felt bigger than ever before. Inhidwana's father, Sargon of Akkad, united the previously independent city-states of Sumer and his warriors, his soldiers, then made their way into places that people might not even, even have heard of the generation before. Trade boomed, there were huge technological advances as well as in art, um, but at the same time, this new wealth and power that flowed into Sumer was extremely unevenly distributed. Um, it was tightly concentrated around the king and his court. 
Um, and at the same time, the latter part of the period sees dramatic climate change, not man-made as we have it today, um, but what we call the 4.2K dust event, these kinds of terms that geologists like to come up with, um, that would leave the, uh, the area drier and uh, would create famine and possibly even uh, contribute to the collapse, uh, the eventual collapse of this empire. So why am I telling you all of this? Why am I beginning with the details of this period? Because I think all the things I just said uh, could also, to varying degrees, serve as descriptors of our own period. Uh, we are also living through a period of climate change. We're living through a period of great technological advancement, of all sorts of, uh, you know, I really feel like history is barreling forward. Um, but at the same time, a time of huge social inequality, a time of huge uh, divisions, uh, social tensions, and again, these social tensions definitely also characterized in Hidwana's time as well. Um, there were constant revolts, and one of those revolts is the narrative frame for, in Hidwana's best-known poem, The Exaltation of Inanna. So a time where literally everything was turning upside down. And during this time, we have this uh, priestess who is uh, installed by her father as high priestess in the city of Ur. And the poem that is attributed to her, or uh, the best known of the poems that is attributed to her, The Exaltation of Inanna, uh, is a hymn to the goddess of change and contradiction and chaos. And again, I will return to a moment in a moment to whether Inhiduana wrote this poem herself or not, but it is striking to me that this is the poem that pe people at the time uh, attributed to her. This is uh, a stunning moment, I think, in literary history. This is a time in which everything was turning upside down and in which rather than trying to think of dramatic change as an interruption of history, as something that uh, comes to us and then passes. These poems, The Exaltation of Inanna, and especially another poem attributed to Inanna, Edwin Hidwana, the hymn to Inanna, think of change and the goddess of change as the supreme forces that rule this cosmos. So they don't think of chaos and change as interruptions, but as the way things are. And I think that remains a philosophical and a historical and a spiritual challenge uh, that is more relevant than ever today. Um, if there is one thing you should take away from my talk, one piece of information I want you to remember about Enhidwana, uh, this is not even me who came up with it, it's two of my colleagues, Eleanor Robson and Gina Kostantopoulos, they developed this wonderful framework for thinking about Enhidwana that I really like. And that is to say that Enhidwana had three lives. And I think that's very important for how we understand her. So the first life is in the period that I just described. Um, and that is the historical Enhidwana, um, who we know lived and served as high priestess. And this is her disc. You see an image of her there. We uh, know she was a historical individual, unlike Homer, who might or might not have existed. We know that Enhidwana was indeed uh, the, the daughter of Sagan. We even have the name of her hairdresser, which is one of my favorite things about her. Uh, her hairdresser had a cylinder seal, and so we recovered it in the, like we have the hairdresser's grave. We have the grave goods of Enhidwana's hairdresser. Um, I like to think that, you know, uh, somewhere in the Penn Museum archives, they'll find like a hair, and then in sort of Jurassic Park twist, they'll clone her. Uh, it's probably not gonna happen. Don't hold out uh, hope for that. Uh, so we know she was a real historical person. We know very little about what her life would have been like, um, in part because we have so little information about her, but even so much about her role as high priestess is, is unknown. Um, I think one of the other really important things I want you to take away from Celine's talk is 
you know, never would in Hidwana have operated in a vacuum. Uh, in Hidwana would have thought of herself as stepping into a long lineage of high priestesses before her, and also a long lineage of high priestesses that would have continued after her death. Um, so that is the first life of Inhidwana. The second life of Inhidwana comes 500 years later, during the time of Awad Aya, a wonderful name, um, in which Inhidwana was remembered as a literary superstar. Uh, and so people at the time um, would have learned the language in which Inhidwana's poems were written, Sumerian, which had died out as a living language in the intervening centuries. Um, and so Sumerian had become this language instead of literature and scholarship and religious ritual, much like Sanskrit in India or Latin in the um, uh, in European Middle Ages. And just as, you know, until relatively recently, or indeed still today, British prime ministers would be made to sweat over Virgil if they had any hope, if they were to have any hope of attaining uh, the office, so would courtiers um, in the uh, old Babylonian period have been made to sweat over in Hidwana's exaltation in order to learn Sumerian and gain the cultural capital uh, that came with it. Also at the same time, Sumerian was, as I said, uh, a language of religious ritual. And I really think it is, that's also a very important part of in Hidwana's legacy um, for, the, for, for um, the, this context in which we know she was studied. Um, because these are hymns, they are prayers to uh, the goddess Inanna first and foremost, and in the case of another a text that was attributed to her, the temple hymns to the various temples of the Sumerian world. So learning in Inanna's text was also learning how to speak to the gods. And the third life is this one, <laughs> this is now. It is uh, in Hidwana as an ancient figure in the modern world. Um, and it is a life that has been uh, that began back in the 1930s when this disc was dug out of the uh, ruins of Ur and then has pro been progressing slowly since then. Um, another thing I love about Inhidwana is that the first edition of the Exaltation was published in 1968, just as the world was turning upside down anyway. Why not also publish a hymn to the goddess of change and rebelliousness? Um, but then slowly since then she has become gradually and gradually better known, but still very much living in the shadow of better known cuneiform texts like the Stele of Hammurabi or the, uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh until uh, very much last year <laughs> and Sidney Babcock's uh, wonderful exhibition at the Morgan that I really think kickstarted uh, a new wave of interest in Inhidwana. And it was such a wonderful coincidence that my translation uh, could appear just in the wake of that. So um, I very much hope that, you know, I. I've done my small contribution and that events like this will continue to contribute to uh, making Inhidwana better known. So those are the three lives, ancient historical priestess, ancient literary superstar, and then um, ancient figure in the modern world. Uh, one of the reasons that it's so useful to think of these uh, three different lives is that um, we're not fully sure uh, the degree to which they, as it were, match up with one another. So these manuscripts, that we know the text from. They were produced by students stud studying her text in the old Babylonian period, but that is 500 years after the historical priestess herself. And we do not know, we have no texts of the intervening centuries uh, of her poems with some caveats, it's a longer discussion, um, but um, the poems could have been written in the intervening centuries by other writers uh, writing in her name because these poems are told in Inhidwana's voice. Um, as a way of celebrating the already then famous high priestess. So that would make them the ancient equivalent of historical fiction.
or they could have been in Hedwana's own uh, compositions that were transmitted across time. And there's nothing particularly inherently suspicious about the fact that they're only known from this period, um, because that is when most of Sumerian literature is known from anyway. Um, so that question remains open. And I think that question has unfortunately clouded in Hidwana somewhat. Um, I think that is one of the reasons she's not been better known. But I think she's a fascinating figure regardless, whether she is just a character in these poems or whether she is their author, she is an absolutely uh, fascinating figure to me. And I also think it's worth noting that we see the very beginnings of literary authorship with her, regardless of whether she wrote the poems uh, herself or whether they were written in her name. Um, because these are the first time that poems were attributed not to an anonymous and collective tradition, but to an individual and named author. And that is true regardless of whether that attribution was correct or not. Um, yes, as I said, um, five poems were attributed to her, the two hymns that are so fragmentary, it's hard to make sense of them. Uh, the temple hymns, which celebrate the temples of Sumer, the gods who lived in them, and the cities in which they stood. And then, I don't want to you know, play favorites among my children, but then the two best poems, um, or at least the most interesting ones, are the ones that resonate most with modern readers, um, which are two hymns to the goddess Inanna. And um, both hymns combine an appeal and a glorification of this complicated, ever-changing goddess, god of change, god of contradiction, god of chaos, god of war, god of sex. They combine a celebration of her with, uh, in Hidwana's account, autobiographical or pseudo-autobiographical of her own plight. Um, in the hymn, the section in which Hidwana describes herself is missing. Uh, and if there was ever a fragment, if there was ever a break designed to annoy me personally, is that one. Uh, in Hidwana says in that poem, I am in Hidwana, high priestess of Nana, and then the text breaks off. It's very precisely targeted at me, I feel like. Um, but that is not the case in the Exaltation. In the Exaltation, which is one of the very few fully preserved poems from the ancient world, in Hidwana weaves her story and that of Inanna together um, to describe how there was this rebellion in the city of Ur um, that kicked her into exile and uh, during which she then appealed to the goddess Inanna for help. And that is the poem that we will hear uh, today uh, in uh, Sumerian, in translation, and then in performance. I only have a few minutes left, um, but I was also asked by the organizers to talk a bit about um, gender and its uh, role in, in Hidwana's poetry. And I'm very happy that I was asked to do this because I think it is important to celebrate in Hidwana as a female poet, um, as a female voice. I think that's important, but I don't think we should pigeonhole her as that either. Because one of the other fascinating things about in Hidwana is that her poems contain some, and especially in the case of the hymn, contain some rare but important descriptions of what we might think of as uh, third gender or non-binary uh, identities from the ancient Near East. Um, and those are, uh, she, her, uh, her poem, the, the, the hymn, is the uh, pretty much almost the only source we have for one of these uh, several different non-binary identities called the Pili Pili, which is explicitly described as falling somewhere uh, in between what was conventionally male and what was conventionally female. Um, and then Hidwana even describes herself in that poem in what the very few passages in, that is preserved, 
that is autobiographical from the hymn. She even makes a direct link between herself and these people. Uh, that is not to say that Enhidwana was not a woman. She would definitely have been perceived both by herself and by others uh, in her time as a woman. Um, but she saw herself and her ritual performance um, in relation to uh, these people. So just, uh, I think these, these groups are a good note um, to end on because they really show what is uh, the main message of Inhidwana's uh, poetry. Because what their function was, um, they were not uh, just, uh, you know, um, uh, they were not just subverting gender identities for the fun of it, uh, though I'm sure it must have been fun by the descriptions of their rituals that we read. It does sound like a lot of fun. But they did so in part to, to remind people that uh, everybody in this world is subject to Inanna's uh, power. So Inanna can change everything. As shown in the hymn, she can change the landscape by destroying mountains if the mountains fail to bow to her. She can... Uh, bully the other gods, she can do, she can change everything and everybody. And one of the ways in which Inhidwana's power, Inanna's power to change people manifests is her power to change people's gender. So these ritual activities in which people would take male and female symbols and reverse them and play with them and subvert them, they will remind us that everything about us and everything that we see around us is uh, changeable. So they were constant living reminders of Inanna's greatness and of Inanna's unpredictable greatness. Inanna can impose this change uh, without warning and without seeming reason. So to live in Inanna's world, as Inhidwana believes that we do, is a sometimes terrifying and a sometimes glorious experience. As we will hear more uh, in these selections from Inhidwana's uh, poetry. So, I have also been asked uh, to read some selections in preparation for the musical performance. And so I will do that. <laughs> and, and these are selections from the uh, exaltation. And so you're about to hear something quite rare, uh, which is a reading of Sumerian poetry. And there's a reading, reason why this is quite rare, which is that we don't know how to do it. Uh, so. The Akkadian language um, that people like Awad Aya would have spoken is a dead language. Sumerian is, as it were, doubly dead. Um, and uh, we have some guesses of what Akkadian might have sounded like. With Sumerian, it is much, much more difficult. So please take this with not just a grain, but perhaps a gram of salt. Um, I'm going to read first some uh, Sumerian passages, then some English passages, and so on. So, this is from the exaltation of Inanna, and I will read the Sumerian first. Ninme shara udala ea, munuzimelam gurokiang an urasha, nugig ana suhkeshe galgala, agazide kiang namena tuma, me iminbi shusa duga, ningo me galgala, sankeshebi zaimen, me mueil, me jusushe, me muela, me mueur, me gabaza, me bitab. Ushungangen, kura ush baishum. Ishkurngen, kishe giaza, ashnan labashingal. Amaru, kurbitaide, sankal ankia inamapimen. Izi barbara, kalame shenga. Aneme, shuma, nin ura ua, inim ku anata, inim dudu. Biloda galgala, ningzu abamunzu, kur gulgulu de abaeshum. 
kiang enlila kalama niminri anga anake baguben ningo zapangu kur igigurimwe ni melam uluda nam lu namlu ulu ning mengar ngiribi umuregub meta mehushbi shu baeriti idub erake ngal marabat maraptaka e anir galgala silaba muredu igi meta ning maratasik i cannot emphasize to the extent to which i don't do that often uh, <laughs> Queen of all powers, downpour of daylight, good woman wrapped in frightful light, loved by heaven and earth, holy woman of An. You hold the great gems, you love the good crown. To rule is your right. You have seized the seven powers of the gods. My queen, you are the guardian of the gods' great powers. You lift them up and grasp them in your hand. You take them in and clasp them to your breast. As if you were a basilisk, you pour poison upon the enemy. As if you were the storm god, grain bends before your roar. You are like a flash flood that gushes down the mountains. You are supreme in heaven and earth. You are Inanna. Raging rainfall of fire, it was An who gave you power. You are a queen astride a lion. You give orders by the holy order of An. Who can fathom the great duties that befall you? It is you who strike down the enemy, you who give the storm its strength. Enlil loves you for teaching the land how to fear. An has ordered you to stand by for battle. My queen, hearing your battle cry, the enemy bows down, fleeing sandstorms, terror and splendor. Humanity assembled to stand before you in silence. And of all the gods' powers, you took the most terrible. Because of you, the people must march past the threshold of tears. Because of you, they go to the great house of grief. Because of you, they yield all they own without a fight. Iba nuntetin dumu galsuena ning kura diriga abakiza bantum hursang kiza bae degibeten ashnan ningibi abulaba idzi mueriri iba ushmarande ungbi maranana ungnimbi nibia marablache dukeshebi nibia marapsile ngorush atukubi nibia marapsugesh Marapsugesh, iriba kienediba mir ipsi, ngorush shangabi heshesh marapsharish. Your rage cannot be cooled, O great daughter of Nanna, queen outstanding on earth who can rob you of your rule. The mountain fell under your rule, its harvest has failed, its city gates burn, its rivers run with blood, the thirsty must drink it. All its armies march before you, all its troops disband before you, all its soldiers stand before you, while the wind fills the squares where they danced. Their best men are led before you in chains. Galzu igingal ni kurkura, zingal unglua shirkuzugamdu, dingir zimea tuma galbi dugazu maham. Sha sura mus munus di sha dadaga mezu gamurabdu ngipar kunga humushinkuren enmen enheduanmen enmen enheduanamen masab ikuru asilala idu kisiga bibgar ngae numuntien ude baten u mudabil 
ngisune baten uluda imandul ka lalngo shu uha babdu ning ur sasagno saharta badakim. Wise and clever queen of all lands, of living beings and the innumerable people, I will sing you a sacred song. Good goddess who is fated for power, it is daunting to sing of your might. Good woman, inscrutable and radiant, I will sing of your power. For you, I stepped into my holy home. I am in Hidwana, I am the high priestess. I carried the basket of offerings, I sang the hymns of joy. Now they bring me funeral gifts, am I no longer living? I went to the light, but the light burnt me. I went to the shadow, but it was shrouded in storms. My honey mouth is full of froth, my, my soothing words are turned to dust. In Hidwanamen Aradzu Gamurabdum, Erna Kash Dugagen, Ku Inanara Shu Gamunereba, Dizu Gamurabdum, Dilimbabar Nankushuden, Shuluch Ankugake, Ning Namani Ikur, Anda Eana Harabdanka, Dingir Lugulata Ni Barabdate, Ebilalabi. Baramungi, Hilibi Baramuntil, Sankal Ankia Inanapimen, Tab Mushinkurana, Nini Mani, Humunte, Sun Zikulu, Zingulu, Hemsare Lu Hemidabe. I am in Hidwana, I will pray to you, holy Anana. I will let my tears stream free to soften your heart as if they were beer. I will say to you, the decision is yours. I cannot make Nanna care for my case. But Lugalane has defiled the holy rites of An, wrenching the temple of heaven from the God of heaven. Even the greatest God he does not fear. He has turned the temple of infinite joy and endless delight into a home of evil. He has made himself my equal, but envy hounds him. Oh, my righteous aurochs, chase him, chain him. Great girl boss moment. Ninkiang anangu shazu hamasede hezu hezuam nanna libinguda libinduga zakam binduga angen mahaza hezuam kigen dagalaza hezuam kibal gulguluza hezuam kuragu deza hezuam sangish raraza hezuam urgen arguza hezuam Igi hushaza hezuam, igi hushpi iliza, ililiza hezuam, igi gungunaza hezuam, uruna nushegaza hezuam, uma gubgubuza hezuam, nanna libinduga zakam binduga, ningu ibgulen imahen, ninkiang anagu, mirmirza gamdu, nemur mudub shuluch. Sibinza, Ishdamku Marangal Shazu Namasede, Imasi Imaradigata, Ning Ungal Maradu, Ning Niona Marandugan, Gala Anbarka Shu Humrakipki. Queen beloved of heaven, may your heart have mercy on me. Nanna has said nothing, so he has said, It is up to you. 
let it be known. Let them know that you are as mighty as the skies. Let them know that you are as great as the earth. Let them know that you crush every rebel. Let them know that you deafen the enemy. Let them know that you grind skulls to dust. Let them know that you eat corpses like a lion. Let them know that your gaze is terrifying and that you lift your terrifying gaze. Let them know that your eyes flash and flicker. Let them know that you are headstrong and defiant. Let them know that you always stand triumphant. Nana said nothing, so he has left it up to you. My queen, this has made you even greater. This has made you the greatest. Queen, beloved of heaven, I will sing of your fury. I have piled up the coals. I have purified myself. The holy inn awaits you. Will your heart not have mercy on me? The pain filled me, overwhelmed me. Queen, lady, for you I have given birth to it. What I sang to you at dead of night, let a lamenter repeat at midday. Nin gutuku nirngal nguenakem. Siskurana shubanshitin, manshintin. Shakuinana kibi banagi. Ubanadu lala banzo suhili mas bandodu. Iti eagen lala bangur nana uzidesh mune. Amani ningalaram shudu munanash munanshash. Gish kanake silima munabe nugigra dugani maham. Urgulgul anda meba ningo. The mighty woman, the greatest in the gathering of gods, has heard her plea. Inanna's holy heart came back to her. The light pleased her. She spread joy and beamed with a passionate delight, like a downpour of moonlight wrapped in charm. Nanna extolled her, Ningal blessed her, and the temple's thresholds welcomed her home. What she said to her holy woman was magnificent. You who crushed the mountains, you who were given power by An, my queen cloaked in charm, all praise in Anna. Thank you very much. Thank you, Celine. Celine had to step out. Thank you, Sophus. Um, that was beautiful reading and two very, very uh, brilliant talks. Thank you. So let me begin by introducing Anne Harley properly. She is, as I mentioned, a visiting scholar at the CSWR and a part of the Transcendence and Transformation Initiative. Anne Dorothy Harley is a Canadian-American performer scholar, stage director, and professor based in Claremont, California, where she teaches music and interdisciplinary humanities at Scripps College. After earning her BA in comparative literature, Russian and French, she taught at a university in China for a year and then completed a master's of music in voice performance, a performance diploma in opera, and a doctorate in music with a concentration in voice and historical performance at Boston University. This afternoon's composition and performance are part of Anne's longstanding project, Voices of the Pearl, a song cycle that is inspired by the lives and writings of women who dared to encounter the divine 
unmediated and whose experiences span time, religions, nations, and cultures. The voices of these women, as captured in ancient, often centuries, if not millennia old text, are juxtaposed against modern music. The result is often surprising, unsettling, and justly so, as it mirrors, one may argue, the lives of these very women, their extraordinary experiences, and the fact that they braved and broke societal norms, putting them at odds with religious and social institutions. For this piece inspired by Enheduanna's writings and commissioned Douglas Neans, Norman Dinnerstein Professor of Composition at the University of Cincinnati College Conservatory of Music. Douglas is also the director of Ablaze Records, a company which records and produces music by living composers. We're thrilled to be hosting tonight the world premiere of Douglas's original composition, To the Stars, which resulted from his partnership with Anne. The composi composition's structure was built around Enheduanna's own hymns, which will be sung, as you just heard them spoken, in their, their original Sumerian. You will have uh, English translations in your program, uh, program booklet. <clears throat> so the composition has five movements. Movements one and three deal with power and war, and so they're the liveliest of the five. Movement two is a report of Inanna's wrath. Movement four is intended as a portrait of Inanna, and the final section is a still and reverential movement in the form of a meditation on power and beauty. Douglas's movie, movie, Douglas's music draws freely on the whole history of vocal performance from late Renaissance, or early Baroque to jazz and everything in between, including intoned or rhythmically spoken text mixed with sung text. This approach was specifically elicited by Enheduanna's words, which are rich, dynamic, dramatic, and expressive. So along with the composer, we hope that this piece will touch and engage you emotionally and you might experience a wide range of responses, aggressive, thrilling, visceral, beautiful, and contemplative. In Douglas's own words now, quote, I hope that through my sound painting with the ensemble and electronics, the audience can be transported or seem to be transported back to that time with its sprawling history, its expansive mysticism tied to the stars and the natural world and our human place within all of that. <clears throat> Thank you, Douglas. So late last night, as I was finishing these opening remarks, Anne wrote me a note. I told you she's tireless. Um, and I decided not to try to paraphrase the note, but just to read it to you, not least because uh, for those of you who don't know Anne, you'll get a taste of her sense of humor and her sensibility. So these are Anne's remarks. Over 10 years ago, I was preparing to teach the first half of our music history sequence at Scripps, which starts at something called antiquity and ends with Bach's death in 1750. In the first chapter of our textbook, I came across the mention of Enheduanna, the world's first named composer. It's taken until the current project started several years ago to find a composer intrepid enough to set the music, uh, to set to music those verses in their original Sumerian by this 
Ur composer, who literally lived in the city of Ur. That's a German joke, by the way. Um, it's always good when you have to explain your jokes. It's not mine, it's Anne's. But I laughed. I thought it was good. OK. This evening's event honors Enhe Duana's contributions, but I hope it, this is still Anne speaking in the first person, by the way. This evening's event honors Enhe Duana's contributions, but I hope it raises more questions than it answers. If you're a student, a faculty member, a staff member, or an interested community member, I hope you'll consider categories of contributions you might have overlooked. Who are the documented female spiritual leaders in your area of interest or expertise or tradition? Are there any? Why have so few of us ever heard of Enhe Duana before this semester? If this evening nudges your dissertation or next article, or provokes a footnote or an additional sentence, or challenges you to discuss women's spiritual trajectories over the lovely reception our wonderful staff have prepared, a major goal of this work will have been accomplished. Please make sure to bother me, that's Anne, please make sure to bother me with your suggestions for focus for future cycles. Anne is hungry for more um, instances of this. So here again, this is still Anne's voice. Special thanks to the composer, musician, and Heiduana reading group leader, Iuseda, the tireless CSWR staff, and especially to Dr. Martin Worthington, whose initial generous contributions of expertise made this project possible. Those are the end of Anne's remarks. In closing, I wish to join Anne in acknowledging and thanking our wonderful musicians this evening, including Maggie Finnegan, a second soprano in addition to Anne, Gabby Diaz on the violin, Ed, uh, Amy Advocate on the bass clarinet, Matt Sherrick on percussion, and Evan Zipperin conducting. Thank you all once again. I hope you enjoy this performance, and a reception will immediately follow the performance in the space behind you. Please, to the stage.
premiere of To the Stars. Douglas Neans, composer, Anne Harley, soprano, Maggie Finnegan, soprano, Gabby Diaz, violin, Amy Advocat, bass clarinet, Matt Sharrick, percussion, Evan Saporin, conductor. Sponsor, Center for the Study of World Religions. Copyright 2023, Preston T. Fellows of Harvard College.